You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. In inspiring this next generation to save sea turtles like the leatherback. What can they teach us? Yeah, it was eye-opening. I mean, well, first of all, Chris, I didn't realize that there were so many different subpopulations of leatherback turtles, and it, it does make sense. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. And we're back to sea turtles, but yes, the big one. Not only are we talking sea turtles today, we're talking about the largest, fastest, and deepest diving sea turtle in the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big sea <laughs> animal. It's I creature. I just kept they just kept like as I was doing the research this week, I just kept learning more about oh, it does this. It does this the biggest, and this the longest, and this the deepest, and yeah, I mean, where it lives, it has the widest distribution of any reptile. It, there's some amazing facts about it lives the in like back, it, yeah. yeah, it lives farther north and colder water than any of the sea turtles. It can it can handle it can handle Cape Cod in Massachusetts. I wouldn't even get in that water, <laughs> you <laughs> no, know. I, no, down here in New Zealand, it, it, it's you have the northern tip, the North Island. They've yes. been seen. Yeah, they amazing creatures. We last did sea turtles episode sixty five, and sometimes when we cover a group of animals. We can't dive as deep into the literature. Oh, good one there. <laughs> <laughs> pun intended. But, mm-hmm. it, you know, we can't. So we felt with Sea Turtle Week this week that we needed to, to come back and talk about the specific leatherback sea turtle because they are just wow. Wow, wow, wow. They're so wow, and I had a uh, I had a picture come across my one of my I think my Instagram stream of a group that's working with leather leatherbacks, and it was just so massive. And I'm and I said, Chris, we have to do the leatherback. Uh, I need to learn more about how it gets so big and where it lives and what it eats and all of these things. And so, yeah, it, it was just it was a really impressive creature. But we're also going to talk at length about their conservation story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're going to want to stay tuned for that. They currently are considered vulnerable by the IUCN, but there's much more to that story that we we really want to talk about um, so that you all can be sea turtle conservation heroes because mm-hmm. we, they, they need our help big time. No, I know. I know. My mom always is sending me these bands, you know, to, to protect sea turtles. She's so funny. I think I remember mentioned it in the episode 65, how on our window uh, in California, we're literally 20 miles from the beach, but it said 
you know, turn off your lights for sea turtles. <laughs> Sticker on the window. <laughs> yes. Well, when I moved to Florida, the first time we went to uh, the Atlantic coast on a, you know, weekend vacation or whatever on the beach there, I think we were in West Palm and that was all plastered all over the hotels. Turn your lights off and yeah. it's a sea turtle uh, nesting season. And so, yeah, we're going to talk a lot about the leatherback today and just, uh, and how they do that. And uh, there are areas that are fighting so hard. There's to save them. And, uh, and, and in certain areas it's working, but in other areas, uh, there's subpopulations of the leatherback that are critically endangered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot to their conservation story. Now, before we jump there, Angie, I want to ask you a question. C. I always pick C when I don't know. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, this one, this one's a fill in the blank. Okay. When you think of Kenya and wildlife, what pops in your brain? Gravy zebra. That was exactly. Easy. Yeah. Okay. I think <laughs> elephant, right? Because obviously my, mm-hmm. my babies are giraffe. Yeah. Or... Masamara. Mm-hmm. Lewa. Wildlife Conservancy. I need to get there. It's on my yep. bucket list. Lewa. Yep. Yep. Check it I, out. I've, I've got to get to that part of the world and soon. Well, I have an interview with Sammy Safari, another Whitley Award winner who is working to protect sea turtles. And we're going to release it in a few days. I was blown away by his story. I am blown away on the work he's doing there in Kenya. I mean, I even joke with him. I mean, I I don't think sea turtles in Kenya, but it is a critical habitat for them right off the coast there. So he is leading a team that is working hard to protect not only sea turtles, but also the mangrove habitat along the Kenyan coast. So a fascinating interview coming this week. Sammy Safari, the perfect name, protecting sea turtles. So stay tuned for that one. Yeah, I can't wait to hear that because like you said, it's you you don't really think of sea turtles in, uh, in Kenya, but his story is incredible. Uh, we talk about locals uh, deciding they want to give back to the wildlife, especially the uh, wildlife that's either threatened or endangered. It's a really uplifting story that, that yes, if we all work together, we can help these animals out. And that's exactly what Sammy's doing. So I'm, I'm really excited for everyone to listen to that this week. And I'd like to give a huge shout out to uh, Steph with an F. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Who gave us a glowing review on All Creatures Podcast iTunes. So uh, it just is really helpful. And I, I appreciated reading your kind words. And um, Steph with an F also requested Chris that we get bear back on. So uh, yes, he definitely has a lot to teach us and share with us. So we'll need to get him back on. And I'm not, you might know off the top of your head, which episode that was. Yeah, Angie, we just did that one. It was episode 205 where rain bear stands last. He was fascinating, fascinating to listen to talking about indigenous rights and affecting conservation and now you know we had the wolves with idaho shooting wolves stuff like yes no i think steph with an f is onto something so thank you for that recommendation again and if you haven't already we'd really appreciate if you go to all creatures podcast itunes and leave us a five-star review there um we will thank you kindly yeah and then shout out yes you definitely get a shout out and then i just really briefly uh want to 
help dedicate this episode to to one of my cousins, Paige, and her son, Michael. I was able to interview Michael um, about this time last year on the Kids Podcast. And of course, he talked about sea turtles because Michael wants to be a turtle doctor when he grows up. And when Paige and her family were recently at the Karen Beasley Sea Turtle Rescue and Rehabilitation Center in Surf City, North Carolina, uh, they were able to, of course, learn a lot about sea turtles. And Michael was just really, really happy being there. And he met Jeff, who is a real-life turtle doctor. So Jeff, a huge shout-out to Jeff, too. I don't know if he's listening, but uh, having a mentor like that work with Michael, you know, is such an such a great experience, and I know it just made him want to become a turtle doctor even more. And so, uh, it's just it just warmed my heart hearing that story and knowing that Michael someday is going to be saving and rescuing and helping take care of these sea turtles that we're talking about today. No, absolutely. I mean, it, that's what I love about doing the podcast is inspiring the younger generation. And again, that's possible because of our Patreon supporters. Thank you again. One Starbucks coffee a month supports us. It keeps us going and inspiring this next generation to save sea turtles like the leatherback, which we can go ahead and describe, Angie. I mean, it's massive, massive. So big. That's what caught my eye, like I said, a few weeks ago when I was scrolling through my feed. I'm just like, I I knew that they were big, but I didn't know that they could be between 700 and 2000 pounds. It's, I did yes. I didn't know they could be that big. Or 4 to 8 feet in length. Yeah, longer than me, almost as long as me, yeah. 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 So, so that's what that's just what moved me to okay, we we've, we've got to we've got to talk more about these leatherbacks. But then to look at them, Chris, is also uh they look different than when you think of a, a normal sea turtle with their shells and the mm-hmm. scutes. The leatherback, it doesn't have a visible shell. Uh, there is a shell present, but it consists of bones that are buried deep under its dark brown or black skin. And its back or its carapace is covered with this flexible, oil, fleshy-like, if you will, leather skin. And that's where it gets its name from because its shell, it doesn't look like it has the hard bony shell that the other species of sea turtles do. Uh, And it just makes it so much more visibly distinguishable from other sea turtles. Uh, They're typically black in color, dark olive brown, if you will. Um, And the other thing that's really unique about the leatherback sea turtle is that it has these seven pronounced ridges that run basically from the back of its head to where its tail's at. And these ridge, these ridges stick up a little bit um, and they make it look really like streamlined. Uh, and it's just a really unique pattern as compared to the other types of uh, sea turtles that have, once again, just like a, a shell with scutes on it. So very, very, very different. And I'm sure you'll talk about that a little bit in evolution But as far as their flippers go, they have a really long, clawless front flipper. And then for their hind or their back flippers, they're pretty large and they're paddle shaped. And that that helps them um, excavate their nests during breeding season. And we'll talk a lot about that too when they come on. The 
the very infrequent times that they do spend on the, on the shores and the beaches to uh, the females to uh, dig their nests. They're, they are very unique. They're very unique looking. And then the other fascinating fact, Angie, is these very large sea turtles, like you mentioned, goes in cooler waters. Their range is enormous. Oh, yeah. I put a screenshot on my on my notes and it takes up the whole page because it's pretty much the whole world. <laughs> it's like that's the, the whole globe, it is, basically. It is, it is. It's just not the, the sub-Antarctic or sub-Arctic Correct. waters. It's mm-hmm. too cold for them there. But like all the way down here in the North Island of New Zealand, like you said, all the way up off the shores of Canada, you know, the UK where Pip's at, I mean, Japan, it's... And then all in between, Indian Ocean, Atlantic, Pacific. It's a huge range. And they cross back and forth. They're like, I mean, they ride they ride the different uh winds and they they go all over. That we'll, we'll talk about their migration. It's just oh yeah. Un- unbelievable. That NOAA study I sent you the other day showing their where they were tagged. And mm-hmm. how far they range out, where they range out. I mean, it's insane. They go yeah. far. Yeah. Yes. 10,000 10, miles. Easy. Like yeah. nothing. Well, I know we're going to get into it, like especially some of the different populations talking about conservation because each of those populations are facing different challenges conservation-wise. Starting this conversation off with why care, I mean – these are important predators in the ocean. Like talk about keeping jellyfish in check. I've, I want more sea turtles. There's too many jellyfish. We know there, that. There are too many jellyfish and that's pretty much the main source of their diet. And there was one study that estimated that leatherbacks probably eat about 3000 kilograms a year. And then another study said, well, it might be a little bit less, like only a thousand kilograms of jellyfish per year. That's still a lot of jellyfish. And anybody who's done any ocean swimming, uh, they're pesky. Uh, and fishermen, they're, they're, they give fishermen a hard time. So it's, uh, it, we want there to be a happy balance yes. of both sea turtles and jellyfish. I know we we've covered the immortal jellyfish and they're really interesting creatures and they are important to the ecosystem. One of the oldest, oldest types of life on earth. They're one of the the most ancient, but they are seeing this population explosion because things like less sea turtles, you know, overfishing, which we just talked about a few weeks ago. It, it, it's all having an effect. I remember walking around in Wales with Pip and there was moon jellies all over the beaches. Now, I don't know if that's normal because I don't normally live there, but you know, they're everywhere. And I, and I know, you know, down here in Australia, they're everywhere. And so it's something we, we, we probably should maybe get an expert on that can talk a little bit more about this and, and see where the, the balance in the ocean is between different species. Right. Well, I mean, we know that they're definitely a really critical link in marine ecosystems. If you think about it, marine turtles in general, not just the leatherback, but all the different species, they've been swimming around in oceans for the last 100 million years. And you'll talk more about that in evolution, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. they have a really, really intricate role in the ocean. And then leather, 
leatherback sea turtles also have a really important ecosystem role when they come out of the water uh, for nesting and then, of course, to produce these hatchlings. And although it's it's a sad, uh, but a lot of the eggs and hatchlings don't necessarily make it. And so they can be a food source for uh, predator populations that inhabit the areas of, of the dunes and these beaches where the leatherbacks will nest. And we'll talk more about their numbers and hatchlings a little bit later on in the podcast, but it is a fact of life, right? Like the circle of life. Uh, but what's also really fascinating is the dune grass that is around several different beaches uh, help protect the uh, the beaches from erosion. And here in Florida and probably many, many parts of the world where you live in, uh, people like to put properties near the beach because everybody wants to be by the beach. Uh, but the dune grass and any of the vegetation that grows along the coastline is really, really critical to help basically stop your house or your hotel or whatever from eroding and falling into the ocean, right? And so the leftover sea turtle eggs or hatchlings or things that don't make it right back into the ocean to thrive uh, actually provide critical nutrients for the vegetation that runs along the shores. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the full circle. It's not just in the ocean, but also this really important ecosystem role that they play on the land. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, there's, it's such a complicated ecosystem each playing their own part. I mean, I'm thinking sea otters and sea urchins and kelp beds. You know, we were talking about that a, a month or two ago, how critical the sea otters are in keeping the urchins in check to allow kelp beds to be established that support how many more other creatures that... Well, yeah, and they're a good carbon sink. So Yeah, yeah. And so when you remove the sea otters, then less kelp beds, and you have a, a proliferation of sea urchins. So mm -hmm. same things with like jellyfish. And then Chris, something else to consider is when it's not about the money, it's about the money. So uh, sea turtles have a huge economic importance because people love marine turtles, not just leatherbacks, but all sorts of sea turtles. And it can be a huge source of income for ecotourism in some of these coastal communities. Um, I know here in Florida, like I said, People are very respectful of, of the nesting sites and, of course, of turning their lights off um, at nighttime during hatching season and, and getting the public involved. People just love that. And, and the Coral Triangle was mentioned kind of in your neck of the woods as a really important uh, place for sea turtle ecotourism. It's an area near Indonesia. It's like spans Indonesia, Papua New Guinea the Philippines, um, and the Solomon Islands. So, yeah, so there's, uh, you know, a lot of corals there, a lot of marine turtles, and people love to be there and spend their money seeing them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I remember I did it off Maui years ago. You did off the Big Island of Hawaii years ago. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I got to, yeah, it's just incredible. We'd walk off the beach into the corals, and there I was, like, free snorkeling with sea turtles. Yeah. It was yeah. incredible. And I, I hope that our children and our children's children get a chance to do that. Absolutely. And, you know, rolling into many of the pressures they're facing, there's multiple, but like one thing I had a question was turtle poaching. 
mm-hmm. because talking to Sammy in Kenya during this COVID pandemic, you can imagine, I mean, tourism absolutely dried up. So as far as ecotourism, you know, visiting hotels there in Kenya, people going out on safari, all of those jobs went away. Mm-hmm. And so the people of Kenya that lived along the coast, they turned to fishing or turtle poaching. So they've seen an increase in that. So Sammy talks about how they've been dealing with it there, but that is a a, a real threat. And all of the seven species of sea turtle are endangered. You know, we've talked about that. The, the hawksbill is critically endangered. Kemp's Ridley is critically endangered. And Sammy talks a little bit about that. They see some of those off their coast. But, you know, and then we're talking about the leatherback, which is vulnerable. But, I mean, you know, it's not just poaching for the scoots, which is used for jewelry. Japan uses them for artwork. Like the hawksbill, that is one of the reasons they're critically endangered. But for things like the leatherback, people do eat them for food. You know, we've been eating them for centuries. Sailors would catch them. And then in the late 1800s in Europe, green turtle soup became a delicacy. And then that spread throughout the 20th century. Then where you go, Angie, I mean, that's just, it's not just poaching them for food or their shells, but their eggs, this is where a big threat. And I think maybe you can talk about some of these populations where reading about the leatherback, where a lot of their decline is due to the harvesting of turtle eggs for food. And again, aphrodisiacs and other medicinal uses in Asia and South America. So when you talk about that coral triangle, that is a place where they're really in steep decline. And then Central and South America, they're in steep decline because these eggs are being harvested. Now I'm going to talk about what they're doing to to combat this a little bit, but then you talk about the lights and there was was a planet earth episode or, or one of those that David Attenborough narrated. I remember they were showing sea turtles hatching. And normally, like you said, they go through the moonlight, right? They, that directs them out into the ocean. Well, in this part, the, the lights were causing all of the young hatchlings to go inland and get ran over by cars and, and other things where they died. So that's a factor. Then we go to Seaspiracy. If you just go listen to that and all of the junk in the ocean, all the fishing in the ocean, you're getting a lot of bycatch with sea turtles. They have that. And then we go to climate change where we know you'll talk about it in reproduction, how that affects the sex ratio of the eggs. And there, I just, I I read these threats and it, it could be a whole one hour podcast just going through each one of these. They're facing a ton, a ton and in steep decline, right? Oh yeah. I was, Well, this one study really jumped out at me, Chris, where um, several different species of turtles, including leatherbacks that had washed up dead, were necropsied, and they all had microplastics in them. Oh, yeah. 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 They're eating floating bags and plastic. Fishing lines, balloons. It looks, yeah, balloons. Twine. That made me think of the horse industry with twine. Yeah. Uh, 
when I was growing up, twine was made of like um, a fiber. What comes um, hemp? I mean, hemp fiber. Yeah, some, some things, kind yeah. of fiber. And uh, now, of course, it's plastic. Yeah, everything's plastic. Yeah, it's they're facing they're facing a lot. Well, before you jump, because I know you're going to talk about some of these populations with leatherback. Some things scientists are doing, and and this was this is a really interesting study where they 3D printed leatherback sea turtle eggs, and then they would go, and as she was laying the nest, they would just drop the egg in there, and it had a tracker in it, a satellite tracker in there. And then they would go and wait. Literally within 24 hours, those nests were dug up and mm-hmm. the eggs harvested. Well, they're tracking these poachers and okay. you read the study and, and they tracked them some, you know, within a couple miles of the beach. One, they went, and this is in Costa Rica. One, they went over 80 miles to the buyer. So they, they, they had the whole supply train chain tracked via satellite tracker on these 3d printed eggs. So the, you know, the authorities were able to swoop in and, and catch these people, but that is one way scientists are combating some of this poaching. Now you go to Southeast Asia where you go to that coral triangle. And this is interesting where obviously down there they're being poached for their meat and stuff like that. Well, they're actually keeping these sea turtles in ocean going pens to like, just keep them there for a while until they get them to market or whatever. So scientists have have developed working with, with, you know, NGOs, they now have UAVs flying over these areas of Malaysia and, and Papua New Guinea and all these places you talked about where the software can recognize a sea turtle in the ocean. And then also in these pens, so they can identify where these are, these sea turtles are being held, and then the authorities can swoop in and, and catch the poachers. Wow. See, I mean, humans, we, we ruin everything, but then we can invent things to <laughs> to start to this. undo yeah. things we've ruined. So yeah. yeah, start to fix it. So, well, but no, I mean, I, I'm making light of this, but that is a really, really cool study. And I don't know about you, when I was doing my research this week, one of the, one of my main take-home messages of course, sea turtles need our help. Uh, when I, whenever I go to a grocery store or out to dinner and they offer me whatever plastic bags or plastic utensils, I always say, no, thank you. Save a sea turtle. Right. Every year. Yep. 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 Save a sea turtle. And then about one out of 10 are like, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that one. Right. And so, uh, but it, but at any rate, the feeling that I got um, by studying that the, the doc, Chris sends me like yesterday or two days ago, this uh, 400 page dissertation <laughs> from was, Noah. It was. It was, it was and I'll tell you though. what, I'll tell you what, I did not read the whole dissertation, no. uh, but I did read a lot of it and I took a, took a ton of graphics and we'll, we'll put mm. a lot, we'll put it up on our show notes to share it with uh, our listeners so they can really know what's going on. The most mm-hmm. up-to-date research about their numbers. And yeah, I, d- I did some deep dives into this, into this, uh, into this work. But in that work, what I found were so many different people from different countries, different disciplines coming together to help protect the leatherback 
sea turtle. Mm -hmm. It was uh, so many different NGOs, universities, uh, governmental agencies. And so it just made me, it gave me a lot of hope. And, and, and you should keep in mind too, that there are a lot of regulatory mechanisms, um, internationally to help protect not just leatherbacks, but other sea turtles because they're endangered. Uh, there's, uh, of course, here in the States, they're part of the Endangered Species Act. Um, but just internationally, there's a lot There's a lot of work to help protect them. The problem, though, um, and perhaps not so much here in the U.S., but uh, in other countries, is that unfortunately in some of these areas where it's very rural, uh, it can be hard to adequately enforce these laws. Right. Um, and that's where, that's where the poaching comes in. And so there are laws there to protect them, which that's step number one, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the policies are there. It's just figuring out how to de-incentivize people from going after, like you said, the eggs or the turtle itself from a poaching point of view. But not only on land, do they have a lot of problems, but as Chris mentioned, they, they do have, um, probably as far as the leatherbacks concerned, even bigger problems out in the ocean in regards to bycatch. Unlike other types of sea turtles, leatherbacks don't usually uh, consume bait, but they're more frequently found entangled in fishing gear. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's due to their size. Maybe it's, I don't know why. And depending on which study you look at, there's an estimated 20 to 50,000 leatherback turtles taken a year. And, and bycatch with uh, commercial fishing or nets that are, you know, left there and things like that. So it's nice. a real problem, but yeah. there does seem to be a lot of coordinated effort, um, much more so than some of the other species that we've mm -hmm. covered. Mm -hmm. uh, so that gave me a lot of hope for the leatherback, sea turtle, and, and even the critically endangered uh, species. No, I know. And I mean, you know, like, again, you go back to Sammy Safari, it, it's in Kenya, you know, he's making a huge difference for the sea turtles that are nesting on the beaches there yeah, you know, educating the locals and, 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 and then the government mm -hmm. backing him up with laws and heavy fines and, you know, working with the authorities. And, yeah. There. The enforcement. Yeah. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Now I know this is reading that report. <laughs> that's why I said it to you. <laughs> it was so in depth. It was probably one of the best ones I've found. You're like, I know Angie, she's up feeding her baby at like two in the morning. So <laughs> what else is she going to do? while he's just sitting there nursing. Oh which... God, I mean the, ta the, the <laughs> we'll get to it, but their migratory routes and stuff was amazing to read. Oh, about. well the, the graphics, the infographics were just, yeah. If you're a science dork like us, you yeah. you'll appreciate this manifesto. Yeah. But, you know, talking about the different populations, that was really interesting because certain was, populations are crashed. Yeah, are it was, yeah. yeah, it was eye-opening. I mean, well, first of all, Chris, I didn't realize that there were so many different subpopulations of leatherback turtles. And it, it does make sense. Like the Atlantic ones don't really interact with the Pacific ones that don't really act with the Indian Ocean ones that don't. And then from a North and South region, there's differences based on the ocean currents. And so as far as the seven subpopulations of leatherback turtles, there is the East Pacific subpopulation, which is critically endangered. Chris touched on that a little bit. The Northeast Indian Ocean subpopulation, which we don't have any numbers for, it's considered data deficient. Uh, and then in my neck of the woods here in Florida, we have the Northwest Atlantic Ocean subpopulation, 
and that is considered endangered. Um, then there's the Southeast Atlantic Ocean subpopulation. That's like along the coast of Africa. That's data deficient. Uh, Southwest Atlantic Ocean, uh, that's like the Brazil region, and that's critically endangered. Southwest Indian Ocean, critically endangered. And West Pacific Ocean, critically endangered. So I don't know how these guys are still vulnerable. <laughs> but I know, I know. overall, their numbers are vulnerable. Like when you group them all together, the IUCN says they're vulnerable. But a lot of this is... Uh, when I was reading it, a lot of these are very educated, a lot of modeling guesses of their populations uh, because they're m- mostly based on the females that come out to nest and then the hatchlings. And so, I mean, the males are really never mentioned because mm-hmm. they're, they spend their whole life in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, they are. I mean, even, you know, reading a statistic that, you know, Malaysia and that, that coral triangle in 1953, there was about 10,000 nests of leatherback. They only found two nests in 2003, right? Like they're they're almost gone from that region. So right, well, and that's where me just because I am living in Florida, and um, I'm just like, okay, I need I need to know more about the leatherbacks in the right. Florida area. And so looking at some of the data from Florida, it is pretty hopeful as far as nesting sites go. Uh, for instance, in 2017, there were 663 uh, nesting sites in different counties throughout Florida, with some of the highest in West Palm Beach area, which is the southeastern coast of Florida. Um, but yeah, even even a few on the Gulf side, where where my mom stays over there in uh, Fort Myers, Lee County, there were mm-hmm. a couple nests. And then in 2018, it jumps up to 949. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 2019, 1100. And then 2020, the count was 1600. Wow. So 1652. So yeah, there seems to be some increase on as far as far as like um, the nesting surveys go, mm-hmm. um, and that's hopeful, right? And, uh, but the numbers from Mexico don't look as well. Um, researchers think there's a decline from seventy thousand nesting females in nineteen eighty two to less than two hundred fifty in nineteen ninety eight. So, I mean, oh, they're, yeah, they're, they're crashing in, in Central and South America. I mean, it's just yeah. absolutely 90%, you know, they've, they've suffered a massive decline because of poaching, mm-hmm. you know, poaching those nests. Well, I'm glad we kind of covered that because this is, you know, we, we really wanted to kind of highlight that more in this podcast because sea turtles have been in the press, which is good, which is really good, but they are facing so much, so much out there. And again, during turtle week, we wanted to highlight them again uh, to talk about them. Now, evolution, I'll do this relatively quickly because we've covered them before. But the leatherback is unique. They they belong to the order. I mean, obviously, they're reptiles as a class. But the order is testudens, which is the turtles and, and torti or tortoises. And roughly 356 species of, of turtles, roughly close to 50 species of tortoise in the world. So we, we've, we've covered got the, our work cut out for us. Yeah. Yeah. We've covered some cool, we covered the Galapagos tortoise, you know, we, we talked about a, a tortai. There's still some more we can cover out there. What is interesting is the leatherback is from the family Dermochelidae and is the only species in that entire family left. Right. So, yeah. And that's, there's another reason to want to save them. 
very they, unique. I mean, yeah. they look unique. When you when you look yeah. at them, you're like, okay, they're different than the other ones. And there it right. is. They're massive. They've been around a long time. They diverged almost 100 million years ago, which I'm going to talk about now. It, they are completely different where the other sea turtles are from the family Chelonidae. So here you have this absolutely unique species heading towards extinction. Now, turtles like reptiles, reptiles are the evolutionary history of reptiles is just so amazing because I used to always think dinosaurs came first, which we know isn't true. Reptiles came first. Dinosaurs came later. Spans over 220 million years. And turtles were almost at the beginning of this, you know, almost 200 million years ago. And, you know, they had interlocking plates were kind of the shell until they developed this, this carapace that we see in a lot of them. Now, sea turtles go back 150 million years. Yeah, it's incredible. It's so crazy. And, you know, the, the it, we always ask, like, what came first? The, the water aquatic life, which we know did. But, you know, when, when it comes to certain animal classes... Sea turtles were originally land turtles that went into the ocean. Okay. So much like whales, which we, we just covered a few weeks ago, pilot whales, you know, were land-based animals that went into the ocean. Sea turtles, same thing. They were land turtles that went in the fresh water. The leatherback, this is what's so cool, diverged 100 to 150 million years ago. So when we look at genetic analysis, they, they just, they're so split from the other sea turtles that they just were so unique. And then about a million years ago is, is when this current version of sea turtle emerged. So these are, this is an ancient species, you know. I love them. I'm so in love with them. Their face. <laughs> yeah, they are ancient. So when you see them, it, it, it's just crazy because I remember going to coyote, like coyotes, like an, an emerging, evolving everyday animal <laughs> that is relatively young. I was so blown away by that. Again, here's a species that it's in its current version has not changed much over a million years. Yeah. You know, through all the, the different ice ages, the, the, the crazy animals that have lived in and out of the oceans during those times. It, it's just nuts. It's nuts. And, and here they are. Oh, I'm just looking at a picture of a baby leatherback. It's so cute. <laughs> I know. This is oh you want to gosh. study them? It does. Yes, this is definitely a species I was like, wow. I know. I mean, you and I do land mammals, mm-hmm. equids, things like this. But I'm like, man, maybe I took a wrong turn. These sea turtles, they need our help. They're <laughs> they so – and they're just so cool. Their physiology. Yeah. Uh, and there's still a lot we don't know about them. Yeah. Well, jumping into that. Okay, so they live about 50 years, what we know. Some estimates that they could live to be 100. They, right. They I mean, know. we don't know. And, and yeah, under human care, yeah, I read like 30 to 50. It depends. But uh, yeah, I mean, the wild, it's, they don't know. They don't know. They don't know. Now, sea turtles are, are pretty quick in the water. They can swim almost 22 miles per hour or 35 kilometers per hour, which is pretty quick. I mean, definitely mm-hmm. outrace us, which is fast. Yeah. And I think they're the fat because. Because of their large size, I think they're. Uh, I was reading that they are one of the faster sea turtles when they when they really start moving. Right when they want to, when they want when they to. want to, mm-hmm. yeah. But typically, I mean, I think they they set upwards of like one to six miles per hour, or 
you know, two to 10 kilometers per hour. Yeah, they're just is, cruising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that are not burning all that energy. Now, what is cool about some of the, the sea turtles, but especially the leatherback, Angie, they dive almost 4,000 feet. One of the deepest diving animals. It, it, 15 Was that 1,500 meters roughly? That is crazy. Yeah. They go deep. They go really deep. Yeah, I mean, and then they have to come up and get their breath, right? Like it's just it's insane. Yeah, eighty five minutes is their their dive time sometimes, okay. and the reason they're diving so deep is to get down to where a lot of jellyfish live, because mm-hmm. not all jellyfish are up at the surface, so they will go down there. Compared to the other sea turtles, researchers have found that they actually have higher concentrations of red blood cells which means when you have more red blood cells, you're carrying more oxygen. Then similar to a lot of deep diving species, they have more myoglobin within those red blood cells, which transports and holds, it holds oxygen and then transports it to tissues. So a deep diving sea turtle is going down. So it takes its breath. Like when we hold our breath underwater, we still have oxygen circulating that keeps the heart going, the brain going, our muscles going, right? But we can only go a a minute, two minutes. Speak for yourself. I don't think I can go that long right now. (laughs) Not right now. He's out of breath. Oh my goodness. You're ready. I'm I'm hopping and puffing going upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, when you you were training. This darn baby weight. Jeez. Well, in your swimming days, you could have, you could have easily beat me underwater. Yes, probably Easily. back yeah, in the okay. day. Yeah, I need back to get. I need day. clearly. I need to get back in the in in the pool again. In the pool. Well, okay. So when they dive, they carry a lot more oxygen, so those tissues are fed and survive, and they they're able to shunt their blood to their internal organs to keep those oxygenated and also warm. Mm-hmm. So they're very adapted to, like you said, colder climate in the very beginning, but also these deep dives where they can go down and survive the crushing depths, no problem. And yeah, Chris, I'm glad you touched on some of their thermoregulation because they have that countercurrent heat exchange um, in their limbs. And so when they're in colder water, they can basically maintain a higher temperature than their surroundings, right? And you need that if you're near Massachusetts swimming around trying to forage and uh, and look for jellyfish. Uh, But also they have an insulating layer of fat and that helps them of course, when they're in the cold waters, but some of these other techniques help them avoid overheating when they're nesting because a lot of their, most of their nesting uh, areas are tropical or subtropical. And so they need to be feeling good in Florida mm-hmm. in the summertime, right? Which I, when I walk outside right now, I'm hot. I'm, <laughs> I'm sweating. I'm like walking the dog at like seven in the morning sweating. I'm like, this is, it's, this is, is not going to get much better throughout the day. So Florida, yeah. yeah, but um, they, they just have really amazing thermal regulation. But what I couldn't get over besides, of course, their thermal regulation. And then, then they also have the osmo regulation. Mm-hmm. All sea turtles have that, not only a little other backs, but others where they basically um, stay hypotonic to the ocean and the ocean has a lot of salt. Mm-hmm. And so they ingest a lot of salt when they're eating the jellyfish and things like this. And so they have to excrete salt. 
they have a specialized gland um, near their eye. It's called the lacrimal gland uh, that basically produces tears that are salty. So they see turtles cry salty tears to help yes. <laughs> to help them keep them yeah to help keep them osmol regulated. And how they differ from other sea turtles is you know, like the hawksbill and things like that, where they, they crush my crustaceans or something like that. The leatherback does not They're They have this more sharp edged jaw. Like they're very specialized for jellyfish, right? Like mm-hmm. for soft bodied prey. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And that's mostly what they eat is gelatinous invertebrates. Um, but they have been known to eat other small crustaceans, uh, fish, cephalopods, snails, sea urchins, but yes, pri- primarily those yummy jellyfish that they will travel far and wide for. And their esophagus um, has these short spines. It's it's surrounded or lined with short spines that point down towards their stomachs. Uh, and researchers speculate that that's to help prevent Jell- jellyfish uh, from escaping once they're swallowed. Like you're staying down there, you're hooked, <laughs> you're not coming back up. No, no. But a really fascinating uh, adaptation, right? Yeah, no, they they are. I mean, again, and very ancient. It, before we jump in, because you mentioned migration, I, I want to talk about that. It, again, really quick, what preys on leatherbacks? It, I mean, Angie did talk a little bit about the the young ones being being picked off on the beach. The adults, not many things prey on them. Sometimes killer whales. Humans. Humans, for sure. Great white sharks, tiger sharks sometimes. Uh, nesting females have been preyed upon by jaguars, which is crazy. I, I don't know how we missed that in the jaguar episode. But, hmm. you know, they're not many. Not many go after them, but sometimes they can be picked off. Now, you mentioned migration. And I remember those maps in that report. It was crazy how far they go yeah it's bonkers i mean leatherbacks travel they are the traveling sea turtle uh i mean ten thousand miles every year some of the tracker studies indicate ten thousand miles every year and it's and and what they're learning too is the reason these subpopulations are so important to save is because the northwest atlantic subpopulation does not intermingle uh, with the Southwest Atlantic population because of the sea currents and uh, and the way the ocean moves. Is there? There's a little bit of crossover, uh, but there's been these really intense like genetic studies to try to figure out if they are interbreeding and and things like this. And for the most part, what we know now is no. Uh, they. They know, I mean, their home range is huge, like all of the Northern Atlantic Ocean, but that's, that's where they're going to hang out and they're, they're not going to really drop into other areas. And so it is important that each subspecies in their ocean region is protected uh, so that they can do their natural migrations to find jellyfish all over. They have a really high prey drive uh, to find where there's lots of jellyfish. Um, and then these, as Chris mentioned, they've been doing this for tens of thousands of millions of years. So, uh, they know where to go to, to eat thousands of pounds of jellyfish, um, that they're used to eating each year. Mm -hmm. So for example, when we're talking about Pacific leatherbacks and 
California area where, mm. where you used to hang out. Um, they'll migrate from the nesting beaches of the Coral Triangle. Right. All the way to California. That's crazy. Where your family is. Yeah. To feed on uh, the jellyfish there in the summer and the fall. That's Across so the far. Pacific. The whole Pacific Ocean. It's Just huge. for jellyfish. It's like, I didn't <laughs> know jellyfish were that good. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> But for me, it just begs yeah. me. I'm always like, I always ask. I answer one question, then I ask another and another and another. Mm-hmm, and so, mm-hmm. but I'm like, how, how do they do this? How do they do that? And what researchers thought for a long time is that uh, they were maybe using landmarks on the beach. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to repro, but typically um, the leatherbacks will return, the females and males will return to the beach that they were born on for breeding. Uh, and so because that's, I'm like, it's one thing to like migrate around the ocean, but how do you know to return back to your natal beach? Right. I mean, that's like, how do you Off find that? Coast. Off, Off the, the coast. Off the coast. I mean, ha- like, and so research, like I said, for a long time, they thought that they were using like visual cues, but now that theory has been pretty much debunked. They don't think it's visual cues. And, um, and honestly, like leatherback, Sea turtles don't have that great a vision. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they're like, okay, is it like chemo reception, right? Because they are they have to breathe air, so they're coming up to surface all the time. Are they picking up on, you know, different smells, but they don't think it's that. Uh, uh, so then they, you know, they're like, okay, it has to be something to do with magnets. Right. And, and of course, there's several species that have been proven to use magnetic orientation to help them do these huge long distance migrations. Uh, you've got like uh, yellowfin tuna, monarch yeah. butterflies, other species of sand, other species of sea turtles. So, but with leatherbacks, they're just not 100% convinced. And one study showed that if they raise hatchlings in a lab, so hatchling baby leatherback sea turtles, um, and they changed or reversed the magnetic field uh, and they were in a dark room, it would basically screw up um, or re screw up the hatchlings and they would be oriented in the opposite direction than they would normally would. So they think that there's some magnetic compass going around, but they, but this newest study thinks that they might be orienting by the sun using like what's called solar orientation because a team um, out of Cape Cod tagged 20 leatherbacks and followed them for three years. And it, this study was published in the Royal Proce- in the Proceedings of the Royal Society, which is a uh, very, very major. Uh, <laughs> yeah, major, like yeah. an awesome. An, uh, yeah. you're, you're, you're pretty cool. If you, uh, <laughs> if you get it. Or you're pretty smart, I should say. Yeah. Smart and cool, right? You're, you're a hero of mine. Yeah. But it, um, at any rate. They basically tagged these adult leatherbacks and just saw, first of all, that they they travel really deep, um, and that they have they go they're going so deep down in these like they call they call them like gyres or trenches that they definitely like can't be using like olfactory or um, and they don't even think like mag- like the magnetic orientation and their eyesight's not good. So they think that when they come up, when they surface, that they're able to like maybe use the sun to help orientate them on which way to go. Because they're all, even though they took different paths to get to like the same either breeding or feeding grounds, um, 
they were just in these, they were in these deep trenches um, where they just don't have any other like senses. Um, so it was really, it's really stumps them. And so they kind of made this conclusion where they think it's magnetic compass and solar orientation. When they do, when they surface, they can correct themselves that way. But the paper concluded, we don't know for sure. Yeah, <laughs> Which, always. As a scientist, I love that, you know, evidence suggests that it's, it's probably magnetic and then solar related, but we just don't know. So really, um, really, really interesting. It is the uh, fascinating how these animals do. We'll have to get into like, especially when we get into like a migra- migratory bird. I know there's a couple. Well, of I started going down. Da- yeah. I started yeah. going down that road and I just, you know, and of course magnetic orientation is for a lot of birds. So we'll t- we can talk, we can really dive. Cause I still don't understand like how that I can't visualize that. So I need to do a deeper dive with that. Um, but then, yeah, the the solar one was, you know, the orientation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, of the sun on the horizon. Uh, it yeah. was, I'm like, man, yeah, I'm not that good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I remember looking at those maps. I mean, it didn't look like they congregated anywhere, right? Like feeding grounds no, or anything like that. Yeah. No, they're pretty much solitary except for uh, except for breeding. Um, and yeah, they they go on these lonely long routes. Uh, I mean. 10,000 miles to get where the feeding grounds and then back. Uh, and they know how to do it. And we don't know how, how they do it. I know. I know. It's amazing. It's amazing. (laughs) But what we do know, Chris, is that female and male leatherback sea turtles will often come to the shallow waters, uh, off their natal beach where they were born. And that's where they'll breed. And the male leatherback will try to uh, breed with as many females as possible. And depending on, which subpopulation of uh, leatherback sea turtles we're talking about, their breeding and nesting season is going to last from about three to six months, typically during the summer. So for instance, here in Florida, leatherback nesting season is like right now. So it's from Mm -hmm. March through July. Right. And a female is only going to nest typically every two to three years. So that's important when we start thinking about trying to increase their populations and life, um, life, generation intervals. Uh, and so she's not going to come to shore every season. And, but when she does come to shore, she comes at nighttime and the female leatherback will spend about, I don't know, one to two hours, uh, digging her nest. And what's really is that female leatherbacks may deposit several nests during a season. And so that kind of can throw off some of these nesting site numbers right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as, I mean, is this, is, you know, genetics, like, is this from the same female or multiple, you know, different females, different location, things like that, that we're starting to learn a little bit more as we tag them and study them year after year. Uh, but that's why a lot of these numbers are just at best a ballpark besides right. that we know that they're definitely right. endangered. Yeah. Um, Anyways, so the female will uh, uh, come on, come out in the sand and she'll uh, dig using her front flippers and then she'll get a good, a good little nest going and then she'll evacuate basically a nest chamber using her hind flippers. Uh, and the leatherback's going to lay anywhere from like 50 to 150 on average 100 um, eggs, but What's really fascinating, Chris, I did not know this, and you're going to love this as a, as a reproductive expert. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So these females will lay, of course, a lot of fertilized eggs. She'll also lay 
yolkless and fertile eggs that are basically they're shelled um, and they're like gelatinous albumin globs. Mm-hmm. They're known as pro- uh, productive overruns in the nest as well. And so even though she might lay 150 quote unquote eggs, uh, it can, you know, there can be anywhere from 50 to 70 of them or just depending on the clutch of these infertile yolkless ones that of course are not, are never going to be able to be produce right. any, right. any offspring. And researchers don't really know why the leatherbacks do this. Um, researchers think that it might uh, facilitate oxygen circulation, like around the eggs in the nest. Uh, but they, they really don't know. Um, or they can be, you know, maybe be decoys right, or decoy predators. Or right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really, really fascinating. I, 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 I don't remember that from, uh, our sea turtle episode. So that's why I do this podcast. We're always learning. I I learned a ton this week. Yeah. Yeah. And I also found super fascinating is that the leatherback turtle has the heaviest, the biggest eggs among reptiles. It makes sense. Reptiles. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Ranging from uh, around 80 grams. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. um, Dinosaur eggs. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and so anyway, so she'll, she'll lay the eggs and then she'll fill the nest chamber, uh, with sand, of course, using her rear flippers, um, basically trying to camouflage it. Uh, and then she returns to sea, right. Using, uh, the, the, the brightness of the ocean compared to the, um, the beach to help her navigate back to the ocean, which is why it's important for us to keep our lights off. If you live in a coastal city during uh, sea turtle nesting season. And so there the eggs incubate. Uh, they're only about 70 centimeters deep, so pretty easy to dig up if that mm-hmm. is your goal, which mm-hmm. it shouldn't be your goal. Nope. And just like all sea turtles, uh, leatherback sea turtle eggs, the sex ratio, so whether they're going to be male or female, are temperature dependent. And we've talked a lot about the, this mm-hmm. on the podcast, and Chris brought it up during climate change and some of their threats. Uh, so warmer temperatures are going to produce more female embryos. Uh, and then cooler temperatures are going to produce more males right. and temperatures exceeding 32 degree, 32 degrees Celsius are, can even result in death. So they are not only the temp- sex ratio temperature dependent, but they're also tem- temperature sensitive. Right. Too, too hot. It'll kill them. Yep. And then, so after two months, um, if the eggs aren't poached or eaten by predators, uh, those little darling hatchlings are going to emerge from the nest, uh, and they're going to at nighttime. And they're going to crawl, guided by light in the horizon, to the ocean, right? Uh, And from there, once they get into the water, they swim and they swim and they swim and they swim for hours and days on their own, away from land with no parental help at all. And early on, some studies have shown um, that they, they definitely are capable of diving pretty earlier on and that... Yes, in the, in the initial period, they'll drift, mm-hmm. but pretty soon they start active. Juveniles will start actively swimming towards uh, warmer latitudes before winter and then towards higher latitudes to feed during spring. So they, they, they get these migration patterns pretty early, right? I mean, right. obviously it has to be an innate behavior because they don't have mom and dad to teach them any of no. this, right? No. Uh, and there was a study recently that um, within four years, a sea turtle hatchling um, – 
that was uh, that left a beach in French Guiana and the Suriname area went over to Europe. So to Pips uh, in neighborhood in North Africa in less than four years. So by four wow. years, it was already. I mean, drifted I, all the way on that part. Of the I earth. know. <laughs> I'm like, hmm. Let me compare that to my current four year old. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> he he is busy. Yeah. Yeah. He's busy. He does migrate to the fridge all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. But yeah, that's about it, right? Uh, and then, Chris, something to really consider for uh, nests that are undisturbed, right? Like nobody's messed with them. They've been left alone. Like in, in Florida, they're all um, fenced off. Whenever one's found, um, Fish and Wildlife will tag it and make sure that people don't go anywhere near it. Uh, but even even with those efforts, only about 50% of the clutch will hatch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is, it's a tough. And then, of course, and then when they get into the water, I read I read somewhere that like, you know, a very small amount of each clutch might be one to two to five uh, actually make it into adulthood. I know. Right? It's so low. It's so um, low. It's... But they are, yeah. But the ones that do well, they are the fastest growing reptile in the world and they will be full grown adults by the time they're seven to 13 years old. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, they just, I, that's the thing about sea turtles. You're like, you want each one of those little ones to make it, but it's a shotgun I know. approach. You know, they... Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I just, I just, it's one thing for the adults and their migration patterns, but I'm just thinking of these little hatchlings, like. You know, how do they, how do they imprint or know, you know, that this is their beach and this is where they're going to come back once they reach sexual maturity. It's just, it's really, really incredible. I mean, my goodness, I get lost if I don't have my GPS on like 24 seven. I know, I know, I know. It's just, and it's just, and that's where it's like, oh, humans are so smart. We're the smartest animals. And I, I mean, yes. And maybe in calculus and things like this, uh, are make building AI technology to help protect them. Uh, but man, and other things, we, 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 there were some trade-offs that we did evolutionarily speaking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I, I, there's a million sea turtle organizations. Who did you want to highlight this week? Which is great. I mean, that's amazing. There's so many out there fighting for sea turtles. We love them. But who did you want to like specifically put in the spotlight this week? Well, this week, because we're talking all about leatherbacks, I want to give a huge shout out to the Leatherback Trust, uh, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to saving the leatherback sea turtle. And the Leatherback Trust is based out of Costa Rica, and the foundation established a sanctuary in the Parque Marino Las Bulas. And you can check out their website at leatherback.org. And it's a great website with tons of information on it as far as why I care about them, what are their threats, current research and conservation of leatherbacks in that region. And of course, they have a, a beautiful Facebook page as well. So like them and check them out to, to see all things leatherback. And the pictures are just incredible and they're doing great research there. Um, I'd also like to give a huge shout out to um, Earthwatch Institute. I participated in um, several years ago uh, with the Earthwatch Institute on a trip to help um, study wildebeest populations that were declining in Tanzania and Terengere National Park. So I was supported um, at the zoo I used to work at to go do this really important research on wildebeest through Earthwatch Institute. And so sea turtles is a huge one especially through a program on, on Earthwatch Institute called Trinidad's Leatherback Sea Turtles. 
And so this program, of course, helps to count them and save them from extinction on the Matura Beach in Trinidad, which is uh, for this Northwest Atlantic population, the, the Florida population that I've talked a lot about uh, today on the podcast. Um, Trinidad is, I think, the, the largest nesting site. Each year, more than uh, 2,000 female leatherbacks come out onto Matura Beach to lay their eggs, which wow. is just, I'm like, sign me up. I need I to, go help. I need I to go help with that. Uh, so, wow, if you, you know, a lot of us, don't have the time to necessarily get into the field or things like that. That's where the Earthwatch Institute is a fantastic conservation volunteer organization where you can go for a week or two and just help out and learn yeah. so much. Um, so we'll put their, we'll put their info info up on our show notes as well, but they can be found at, at earthwatch.org. And of course on all social media platforms. No, absolutely. And then, and just a quick reminder, Episode 65, you want to learn more about some of the other sea turtles. It's a general overview. But then also episode 66, you know, we had Bree Ondich on who works at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center there in, in the United States. So, you know, it was a good interview we conducted way back when, a couple years ago. Everything sea turtle, Angie, it, it's Sea amazing. turtle week. Yeah, mm-hmm. amazing creatures. I'm glad we did. I'm glad we revisited them. See how they're doing. I'm sure in a yes. year or two we'll, we'll cover another one. and. Oh, for just sure. Kind of see how they're doing. Yeah. 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 And get, getting more sea turtle experts on here, I think would be really important as well. Yeah. Uh, and Absolutely. honestly, one of the simplest things you can do is when somebody tries to offer you a plastic bag or, or any disposable one-time use plastic, say, no, thank you. Save a sea turtle. And they'll look at you and then just say it again. Save a sea turtle with a smile. And I promise you, a few people will be like, yeah, right on. We'll leave it with that. Have a good week. (laughs) We'll, We'll be back next week with the new species. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.